Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we are continuing our series, Money Matters, Biblical Lessons on Money Management. Pastor Roy today will be looking at what it means to live with kingdom values. We encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and follow along with Pastor Roy. Today I'm bringing another message on money matters, and I've entitled the message, Living with Kingdom Values. This is not easy. Living with kingdom values because we live in a world that values things that the kingdom does not value. We live in a world where the values are turned upside down. What is important to the world is not important to God. And what should be important to us sometimes is not as important as it should be. And I say us, I'm including myself. It is a challenge to live with kingdom values. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to focus specifically on verses 19 to 24. We're going to read those and then we're going to set the context for these verses. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. My Bible, the words are in red, if you have a red letter edition, uh, because they're the words of Jesus. And he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This passage is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 contains Jesus' Sermon. Who is Jesus talking to? Well, if we go back to Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning of the chapter, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. So we see crowds, and we see disciples. However, these disciples are not necessarily committed followers of Jesus. Oftentimes, when Jesus taught, there were crowds that gathered. And you know how it is when there's a crowd that gathers, a crowd attracts people. Uh, We saw that uh, with the march a week ago in Washington with all the ladies marching. And some of them were interviewed and they were asked, what are you you protesting? They didn't have a clue. (laughs) They just wanted to be part of the crowd. And they didn't really know. And so I think Jesus, when he's talking here, he's talking to the crowds People are curious to say, what does Jesus have to say? And Jesus begins on this discourse to talk about what is important to him and what is important to his kingdom. 
Because in the book of Matthew, Jesus focuses on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's interesting, though, because Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. He does not talk about the kingdom of God, even though they're really the same. I think the reason that Matthew uses kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God is because God's name is so holy to the Jewish community, they did not want to speak his name. They saw it as too holy, too exalted. And so he refers to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom in which God is the ruler. He, his authority is what governs and guides the society. When Jesus came, if we go back to Matthew chapter 4, 17, it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. This is the beginning of his ministry. He begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So this message of repentance was introduced, even by John, but Jesus comes and says, repent. That's the first step of understanding the kingdom is that we are at odds with God. We are in conflict with him, with his authority, with his rulership. And we need to humble ourselves and accept his authority and his rulership of our lives. So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This kingdom does not have geographical borders. We can't just say, well, it's, it's from here to here to there to there. It's not geographical. It is more personal and individual. The kingdom of God, he says, is within us. So the kingdom is here now, but it is not fully realized. It has not been consummated, and it will not be consummated until Jesus comes back. The Bible tells us that. In fact, last week when we looked at the parable in Luke chapter 19, in verse 12, it said this, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king of what? The kingdom. And then to return. Look at this verse in Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So we see that we need to repent to be part of this kingdom, which means turning away from our sin, embracing God and his truth. And then we see him proclaiming the good news. That's good news. We can be set free from our sin. It's wonderful news. He even tells us in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a ruler. And he says, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So to get access into this kingdom, we have to be born again. We have to recognize we're a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And to become a disciple of Jesus, we embrace this born-again experience, which means the new birth, which comes through believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That's the only way, putting our faith and trust in him. He goes on to say in John 3, 5, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. It's a spiritual rebirth that takes place. So this kingdom is a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of life. Let me show you just a couple other verses real quick to set the context. In Mark 9, 45, it says, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life. He's saying it's better to enter the kingdom 
crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The reason I say it's to enter the kingdom, to enter life, look at this next verse, Mark 9, 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to what? Enter the kingdom of God. So he's equating life and the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Remember, Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have what? Life. Because that's what the kingdom is all about, life. That they might have life and have it to the full. Here's what he says, too, in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So there are two things in relationship to the kingdom of God that we have to have in our lives. The first one is belief. I have to believe in the message of Jesus Christ. I have to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. It's essential in his message of truth. And the second is closely aligned with that. It is practice. I have to practice. My life is to strive to line up with the teachings of Jesus in my morality in my integrity, in my behavior, in my ethics, my practice is to line up. So that's what Jesus is challenging us with when he comes to give this message of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the citizens who are a part of that kingdom, here is how you are expected to live. Here's how I am expected to live if I am a citizen of this kingdom. Because this kingdom is not of this world. So therefore, the citizenship that we have and the obligation that we have as a citizen is far different than the obligation of a person who is outside the kingdom. They will not embrace this teaching. They will reject it because it is countercultural. It's a countercultural message. And therefore, it's a challenging message. It strikes at the very heart of who we are. And so here's the first thing he says in verse chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. That's challenging, is it not? Don't put your security, he's saying, in earthly treasures. Now, let me quickly say this. The Bible does not condemn saving money at all. In fact, it encourages us to save money. You're like, wait a minute, he just said don't put your security. Yeah, don't put your security in it. It doesn't say don't save it. You see, if you look right down 2 Corinthians 12, 14, it says parents are encouraged to save money for their children. That's what it says. If you go to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, it says that we are to learn a lesson from the ant, which says this, it stores up its provision in the summer to be prepared for the winter. So there's nothing wrong with storing up goods, storing up money, storing up things. It's not wrong. Owning property is okay. 
as well. Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira, and he rebuked them for lying in Acts chapter 5, but he did not rebuke them for owning property and having money. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We do need to recognize, though, that our money is a trust from God to be used for our needs as well as to advance the kingdom of God. That's what he's telling us. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was the wealthiest who ever lived, he uses the word vanity, chasing after the wind. He says the reason he calls it vanity is because he's saying all the stuff, all the money, all the wealth, all the possessions that we have are temporary. They're non-enduring. They're not going to last. That's what he's telling us. We will take out of this world exactly what we brought into it. Nothing. We brought nothing in and we'll take nothing out. So it is vain to spend all of our energy getting stuff that will not last. That's what he's telling us. This stuff that is limited to time and flesh can consume our time, our energy, our strategizing, that we have no time left for eternal things. The values of the kingdom of God get lost in the shuffle. Notice I said how difficult this is for all of us. I don't have it all figured out. Well, let's consider three ways that wealth was accumulated in the first century. There were no banks, after all. Sorry, bankers. There were no banks at that time. But there were three ways that they stored their wealth. The first one is by hoarding garments. This is why we see in Joshua chapter 7, Achan stealing a Babylonian garment. They were valuable garments. And you get a whole closet full of garments, you can sell them and have a good chunk of change. So they would hoard garments to become wealthy. Secondly, by storing grain. Luke chapter 12 talks about the rich fool who filled his barns with grain and God judged him for his greed. You see, in the ancient world, the Near East often experienced famines. And because of famine, they would store up grain because they could, the price of grain would go through the ceiling because people didn't have it and they could amass an incredible amount of money. Nothing wrong with being good in business, but his point was he focused on making his life easy. And he wasn't investing in the kingdom of God at all, if you read that parable. And that's the difference. Thirdly, exchanging assets for gold. They would often hide it in a pot or buried in a field. Jesus is saying there are no investments on earth that are safe. Because what does he say? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where what? Moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Moths eat garments, hoarding garments. Um, storing grain, we eat grain, rust eats metal. It eats away and it takes it away from us. Mice and rodents can eat grain. 
Thieves break into houses and steal gold. Thieves in the first century were called diggers because the houses were made of clay brick. And so they would dig into the wall and dig a hole in the wall and steal. And that's how they would do it. So Jesus is saying, don't try to lay up all of these earthly possessions because they are not safe. Or at least don't put your trust and your security in it. Today, we talk about stocks and bonds. They can drop like the temperature on a cold January day in South Dakota. <laughs> you don't have anything left. Our houses and possessions can be lost in a fire, a flood, a tornado. They're not safe. An earthquake. And all of a sudden, everything we have is gone. If our goal in life is to get a bigger this and a more expensive that, it will be difficult to live with kingdom values. Paul said about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone on to Thessalonica. Samuel Johnson is an 18th century English lexicographer. lexicographer. He was once invited to a tour a mansion. It was a place of magnificence, surrounded by manicured lawns. As Johnson was leaving, he remarked to a friend, a place like this makes it difficult for a man to die. When you got so much you, wanna, you have to leave behind. One theologian asked this question, how important will our transient values be in 50 billion trillion millennia. It's a poor bargain when we exchange the eternal for the temporary. So what does he say in verse 21? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now he's talking to kingdom citizens. Those who have embraced, who have been born again, who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are to live counter-cultural lives, not have the same values as the world has. We are to be different. And so he says we are to invest our resources in spiritual treasures. Again, nothing wrong with saving and investing and, and all those things. But he's saying this will give us the right focus on our finances and our possessions. Reminds me of a story, a little boy, he had, he had two quarters and he was on his way to church and he had one quarter to put in the offering and one quarter for a candy bar. And as he was making his way across the street, he accidentally tripped and he fell. And one of the quarters fell out of his hand and it rolled across the street and kerplunk right down in the sewer. And he got home from church and he told his dad what happened. And his dad said, did you put the other quarter in the offering? He said, no. He said, God's quarter went down the sewer. <laughs> Isn't that how often we view it? If there's going to be a loss, it's not going to be mine. It's going to be on God's side, not my side. It's his quarter. Origen, the church father, said, Christians are like money changers. We take the capital of earth and we change it for the currency of heaven. I like that. 
We take the capital of earth and we change it for the currency of heaven. We invest in things that will outlast us. In Colossians 3.1, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I like what Randy Alcorn said in The Treasure Principle. He said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. So that we can invest in the kingdom, so that God's message is expanded to the world, to a lost world who needs to hear the message of truth. These treasures are protected. They cannot be taken. Actually, if I go back and let me just read quickly from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection from, of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen to this, an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade kept in heaven for you. That's why what we put in our spiritual treasure will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven reserved for us. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. It'll never be stolen. It's laid up for God's plan, God's agenda. Thirdly, we should live with an undivided loyalty for the kingdom of God. Notice what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. So here he's talking about two eyes. He's talking about good eyes and bad eyes. Just like earthly treasure and spiritual treasure. Good eyes, bad eyes. He's saying the only way for kingdom citizens to live is with good eyes. Eyes that are full of light. The bad eye focuses on darkness and lives in darkness. Darkness is living for this life only. It is not concerned with living with kingdom values in mind. Here he talks about good. What does a good eye? Well, the original word used in the Septuagint meant this. Singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty. Singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty. You see, the good eye is fixed on God and his kingdom. It is focused on eternal things. Notice it says in 1 John that God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. So if you and I are focusing on the kingdom and the king of that kingdom, and that king is a kingdom of light, and I'm focusing on my affection of things above, and he is light, I will be full of light, and I will reflect that light to the world. 
what he's saying. I will have good eyes. My life will be full of light. In fact, here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Why? Because they're living with kingdom values. They're looking to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is in an inapproachable light. My life will be full of light as I look to him. The dark eye is the evil eye. The rabbis would say the evil eye is the person who is characterized by selfishness. Whereas the good eye would indicate generosity. Generosity. Being full of light is equivalent to being generous. Next week we're going to have a financial peace class. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to grow in the area of stewardship of your finances, of your possessions, so that you can do more with what God has given to you and entrusted to you. What an opportunity. Great teaching, great opportunity. The second week of April, we're going to have Garvey Schmidt come. He will share about will planning, estate planning, trust, wills. How can we be good Christian stewards of what God has given to us? That'll be on a Sunday night. It'll be a will planning workshop and I trust you will consider to come and be a part of that and be challenged in that of how to be a better giver to God's kingdom. Chip Ingram tells a story in his book The Genius of Generosity about a successful businessman. His name was Tom Monaghan. He was about as successful as you could possibly be. He was the innovative founder of Domino's Pizza. He grew up in poverty. At the peak of his personal empire, he owned the largest pizza delivery chain in the world, as well as the Detroit Tigers baseball team. He had plenty of expensive cars and collectibles. At one point, 54% of all the pizzas delivered in the U.S. were delivered by his stores. He was at the top of his industry. But one night, he opened a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. When he opened that book, Monaghan came across a passage about pride that hit him right between the eyes. He saw himself in Lewis's words, and he was suddenly aware that all of his hard work was based only on having more and having more than others. He said, I was too obsessed with impressing people. He decided to do something about his pride, and he rededicated his life to God. Monaghan decided to give up all his toys, and he took what he calls a millionaire's vow of poverty He eventually sold Domino's Pizza, and he determined to devote the rest of his life to giving away what he had in order to help people know Christ. Kingdom value living. He took care of the needs of his family, but he said the rest is being leveraged for eternity. 
He wants to die broke. And he has put himself in a position to do exactly that. He's investing his money to help build God's kingdom and expand God's mission. Now, many of us are not called to, to that depth of that kind of giving. I think we just need to be open to say, God, what is it you want me to do? What is your plan for my life? What do you want me to do? If we look at the end of verse 23, he says, If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's saying, if you think you are full of light, when in fact you are living in darkness, the darkness is really great because you're really deceived. And there are some people who think they're in the light when they're in the dark because they've never truly surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. And in essence, that's what this whole passage is talking about, is surrendering our whole lives to the Lordship of Christ. <clears throat> Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some translations will say mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. Here's the final point. Our allegiance can only be directed to one place. He's saying no one can serve two masters. You see, in the first century, masters owned the slave. The slave was subservient to the master to do whatever the master said seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He could not possibly obey two different masters, get two different messages, two different agendas, two different priorities. He only had one master. One person who he could give allegiance to. Jesus is saying, if you are a citizen of my kingdom, you cannot be under the master of another kingdom. You have to be under my lordship. You have to be under my agenda, my priority. You have to embrace my message. And you have to put into practice what I have said. That's a challenge for all of us. And so he says, no one can serve two masters. And then notice what he says. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There's a contrast between love and hate. This is a common Semitic idiom, which is not to be taken absolutely with hate and love, what he is saying is this. To hate one of two alternatives and to love the other simply means the latter is strongly preferred, especially if there is a contest between the two. The focus here is on devotion and priorities devotion and priorities. 
In Luke 14, 26, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. He is not saying hate in the absolute sense of the word. He's saying that you are to strongly prefer me over them. First, allegiance to God, the Lordship of Christ, before I give allegiance to my family. He's saying our best love and first allegiance is to be directed toward God and his kingdom. That's living with kingdom values. See, mammon or money originally meant something in which one puts confidence. This idea came to mean all of our material possessions, our wealth, our profit, our money. Here's the idea. We can either serve God and use money, or I can serve money and use God. What's it going to be? We can't serve both. It comes down to a fork in the road where we have to choose. If we are citizens of his kingdom, we need to come under the lordship of Christ and say, by God's grace, this is an area I will continue to seek the Lord in, continue to grow in. This is not something that once we do it, we've arrived. I have not begun to arrive. But we grow in this area of stewardship, of giving to God and sharing and giving him our allegiance. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, let me ask you for a moment. Let me ask a word to the parents or grandparents. Have you helped your children develop spending habits? Spending habits. Do they observe your spending habits? And are your spending habits ref a reflection of kingdom values? What about when it comes to saving money? Have you invested in your children to teach them about the value of saving money? Have you taught your children about the giving to God. Have you shared with your children in confidence? Here's what we give to God. Here's our giving statement. Because this is, we want to support the work of the Lord. We're showing that we have kingdom values based on our giving statement. Or would you be ashamed to share your giving statement with your children because it does not reflect kingdom values. Maybe this is an area of growth for you and say, you know what? My life needs to be an open book to my children. If I want my children to embrace kingdom values, I guess I should be embracing kingdom values. Pretty important. And it's a challenge for all of us. As I preach to you, I'm preaching to myself. May God help Pastor Roy grow 
in the area of stewardship. Grow in the area of understanding my citizenship of heaven. And that I'm under the lordship of Christ and that I will give an account of what I've done with what he's entrusted to my care. As well as each one of us. Maybe you're here today and you've never embraced Christ into your life. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. You're not a part of the kingdom of heaven because you are not born again. You have not recognized or acknowledged your sin before a holy God and received his grace. We sang about grace this morning, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. It's the grace of God that caused him to hang on the cross in humiliation and shame and give his life. We could be forgiven and be born again be part of his kingdom and then begin to live out the values of that kingdom. If you don't know Christ as your personal savior, would you believe the message that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly? Would you embrace him as your personal Lord and savior? Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means turn away from our sin. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as payment for your sin. Ask him to forgive you and come into your life and make you a new person. You can do that right in your seat. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me I desire to be born again, born of your spirit, by grace, by giving me what I don't deserve. I deserve your eternal wrath and judgment, but I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Come into my life and make me a new person. If you do that, the Bible says you become born again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Would you share that with myself at the end of the service? That you've embraced Christ into your life? So we can get you some resources and help you grow in your walk with Christ. For those of us who do know Jesus as our Savior, we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. The values in this kingdom are countercultural. They don't line up with the world at all. They're direct opposite of the world. And God is calling us to that kind of lifestyle. May God help us grow as citizens of his kingdom. Grow in our stewardship. Grow in our ability to expand the kingdom of God. I'm going to pray for us. And then we have one other special thing we're going to do before we close our service today. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If 
you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.